This podcast frequently contains topics and graphic depictions that may be considered sensitive for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Rusty Quill presents The Storage Papers. This week's episode comes from a few documents which were grouped together in a single folder within the papers. As I mentioned previously, I've been able to create some level of organization, but it's still quite a work in progress. All of these documents had a peculiar symbol on them, that of a seven-fingered hand with an eye in the palm. I'm still waiting for someone I know to get back to me regarding the possible symbolism of this depiction, but my curiosity has definitely piqued. The first of these documents appears to be notes about some research by a pharmaceutical company. Most of the pertinent information, like the scientists involved, the company name, and the author of the paper have been redacted. It almost reads as if someone were drafting an email to an employer. As far as I can tell, it involves a status report from some clinical trials, but it's hard to tell without access to the redacted portions. Two additional things I'd like to note before reading it to you. Because of the large amount of redactions, I'm going to paraphrase to the best of my ability in some areas. Also, there seems to be a sequential order to how these documents were stored. This specific document was on top, and I'm going through them in chronological order. The first document reads, Initial trials of the compound redacted portion, indicate only a 12% efficacy rate in the volunteers and the general public. However, in subgroup redacted, there was an astounding 98% efficacy rate. These initial results are composed through a series of data points collected at 30 days following intramuscular administration. So far, adverse effects have been statistically insignificant compared to the placebo groups and we've no reason to suspect any risk of anaphylaxis or neurologic regression of any kind when compared to redacted portion or its predecessor. While we are recommending the cessation of trials of redacted for the general population for the treatment of chronic migraines, our sponsor for the trials, SCIC, has requested further testing to be done for the subgroup redacted. Because conditional funding for our trials did not include specific information about that subgroup's population, we have no choice but to hand all research over to SCIC if trials for that subgroup are to continue as they have deemed the identity of the patients in that subgroup as classified, requiring a government clearance higher than my own to view. It is only by patent ownership that I suspect I'm even being consulted on the matter but I suspect the project to be defunded entirely if I don't agree to their conditions. I have a meeting with them tomorrow morning to discuss. The second document appears to be a letter of resignation, and it reads, Dear Doctor, Redacted, I just wanted to express my gratitude for these last two years of experience I've gained through my employment with you. I would not be at this junction in my career without your help, and you'll never fully know how grateful I am for your belief in me. It is with great disappointment I must offer you my letter of resignation, effective immediately. It's unlike me to do so without notice, 
but I have received an offer to continue to pursue my research into the compound redacted with an increased level of security clearance and the tools at my disposal to truly make a difference. Thank you for the opportunities you've provided me and for always encouraging me to follow the science, no matter where that may lead. Sincerely, AP. The third document appears to be notes of some kind relating to this mystery drug. It reads, Subject redacted, has responded similarly to others in her subgroup until this morning. While we send our team to follow up with investigatory efforts, we are placing her into quarantine until we can gather more information. After much discussion, we have agreed to continue the monthly administration of compound redacted, as she is due for her next dose in two days, while she will likely still be in a quarantine environment. In addition, We are providing her with resources while quarantined from the rest of her subgroup to be able to communicate with them remotely. We want to provide as much inclusion as possible outside of physical presence until we can positively confirm the events described in her most recent session. In parentheses it says see clinical notes for details. Until that point, I will increase our sessions to three times a day for the time being to monitor for any more potential events and in order to follow up for confirmation of their outcomes. The next document appears to be clinical notes taken on a female patient, presumably the patient that is referred to in the previous document. It says, 11.06 a.m., Dr. Redacted, dictating clinical notes from session with Ms. Redacted, 1 July, and the year has been redacted, Ms. Redacted, informed me that she believes her dreams have changed to a somewhat vivid state, only in reverse order. In fact, she believes she only dreams in reverse order after administration of the compound began, and that within the two to three days following each of her monthly administration injections, she's become more convinced that she is actually witnessing through some sort of REM state of remote viewing the actual deaths of people. Quote, as if watching a movie being rewound. A complete physical workup was performed showing no signs of psychosis or recreational drug use. All results indicate she believes she's telling us the truth about these events. She is referring to the suspect in her dreams as the backwards man. Due to the nature in which she observes the murder being carried out. For example, I'm quoting a transcription of her session today below describing one of these dreams. It happened just like the last time. The beginning of my dream is like a still picture. I'm looking at someone's bedroom. There's a shattered window and a headless body laying in a pool of blood on the bed with arms out to the sides. There's trees outside the window which I only notice because the branches cast shadows on the bed and the body on top of it. Then off to the right, I see an inhuman-looking being walking backwards toward the bed from the doorway. Then it turns to face the body and stares down at it. It looks just like if you were to rewind a movie. Everything is happening backwards. The man looks like he's breathing really rapidly, and then it's like he goes in slow motion. 
I see something moving outside of the window that draws my attention, and it's coming toward the shattered glass. As it reaches the hole in the glass, shards that were scattered all over are attracted toward it, and as the object reaches the spot where the window is, the glass combines to form an unbroken window. The object, which I now recognize as a human head, is still traveling through the air, spinning, and I can see a facial expression of sheer terror. As the head approaches the backwards man, the body that's lying on the bed looks like it soaks up all the blood from the sheets into its neck and begins to stand up. As it does, the blood splatters that are on the wall and bed jump off and start traveling through the air toward the body and the backwards man. Eventually, I realize that the spinning head, the body, and the blood are all traveling to a point of origin. It's almost beautiful to watch as the spinning head gets closer to the erecting body. And you can tell that it's going to stop spinning as soon as it meets the neck from the body, and all of the blood will meet at their point of union. As I watch this unfold, the backwards man's right hand swipes in a reverse roundhouse swing and begins walking backward toward the wall. I think to myself, how could someone decapitate another person with a swing of their arm? And it's then that I notice his arm isn't necessarily a regular human arm. It has long, sharp claws at the end that retract a few inches as he reaches the wall behind him. The backwards man then does something impossible. He places one foot on the wall, and then his other foot behind that one, and proceeds to walk backwards, up the wall. I notice the man that was on the bed, now with his head fully attached, loses the expression of terror from his face and turns around with his back toward the man, or the thing, walking on the wall. The man on the ground begins walking backwards towards his bedroom door, as the thing on the wall shrivels into a dark, shadowy-looking creature on all fours synchronously until it meets the ceiling at the very same moment the man on the ground passes through the doorway to the bedroom. Then, as if it disappeared into thin air, the shadow shrinks and fades away. I know it sounds like I'm crazy, Dr. Redacted, but I think this actually happened. The next document appears to be another clinical note from the same patient. It reads, 9.34 a.m. Dr. Redacted, dictating clinical notes from session with Ms. Redacted, 2nd July. Ms. Redacted maintains she has not had another dream like the one from the previous night. However, she has admitted to forcing herself to stay awake after consuming strongly brewed coffee all night. She fears these dreams she continues to have for more prolonged periods after each intramuscular injection of the compound redacted. I believe it's for the benefit of the patient to avoid divulging our investigatory findings involving the incident we learned about in Escondido, as I fear it will only induce more serious symptoms, as well as skew the results of our clinical trials. There are a few notes I'd like to consider for this week's meeting with the board of directors involving the ethical standpoint SCIC would like to take in moving forward with this trial. Number 1. 
At what point are the psychological effects of the subjects going to determine the continued research into the compound, if at all? Number two, at what point are we to consider potential risk to the public if results continue to scale as we predicted based on incidents like that of Ms. Redacted, as models predict? The final document included with this grouping still has the seven-fingered hand with the eye in the palm, but someone took the time to draw it on the document in the top corner of the page as opposed to the others which had what appeared to be a watermark on it. Note to self, ask Ron if he drew the symbol, or if it was like that when he came into possession of the document. It's a newspaper clipping, and unfortunately, there's no date on it. It's just a couple of short columns that have been cut from the paper with scissors. It reads as follows. An Escondido man, white, 43 years old, was found dead in his home Sunday morning after a neighbor coming home from church noticed a side window that had been broken when pulling into his garage. Jorge Padilla gave the following statement to police. We were coming back from church and I saw the window was broken to the neighbor's bedroom, so I walked over and knocked on the door. When nobody answered, that's when I knew something wasn't right. I tried calling the house and nobody picked up the phone, so I walked around to the side of the house, and that's where I found his head in the bushes outside his window. I thought it was a prank at first, but when I saw the inside of the room, I immediately started to cry and called 911. It scares me to think that someone is capable of this in my own neighborhood. He was a nice guy. I mean, why would someone do that to him? Ruiz also mentioned he and his family are heartbroken and scared. He claimed to know the victim for over 10 years and would often barbecue together on the weekends. Police have not released the name of the victim yet, but Detective Mark Anderson was able to provide the following comments. At this time, we have our forensic team in the building and we're ruling it a homicide. We haven't found any signs of forced entry. All doors and windows were locked, including the broken window that the neighbor identified. We have reason to believe that the window was broken from the inside of the residence. We are encouraging anyone to step forward with any information about potential suspicious activity in the neighborhood over the weekend. Detective Anderson refused to offer any speculation as to the cause or method of the beheading and that he'd be waiting for the medical examiner's autopsy report. Thank you for listening to The Storage Papers, a Grinner Media production. Even though The Storage Papers is published every other week, we actually do have weekly content through our Patreon campaign. Not only do our patrons, who we refer to as curators, enjoy weekly episodes, but they also enjoy many other rewards like live chat with the creators, access to Between the Lines, our behind-the-scenes content, original downloadable episode music, and more. If you'd like to support the show by becoming a curator and get access to all these rewards and more, head over to patreon.com slash grinnermedia to check out our various tiered reward options. 